1: Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. My name is Katie Coldiron, and I'm based at Florida International University in Miami, Florida. And today I am interviewing Pablo Alonso Gonzalez, who is the author of Cuban Cultural Heritage, A Rebel Pass for a Revolutionary Nation by Pablo Alonso Gonzalez, released originally in 2018 from the University Press of Florida and released last year in paperback. Um, welcome to the show, Pablo.
0: Hi, how are you?
1: Good, good. Um, So, um, and Pablo is also a senior researcher at the Spanish National Research Council. He's the author of several other books, including Cultural Parks and National Heritage Areas, Assembling Cultural Heritage, Development, and Spatial Planning. So, uh, Pablo, what I like to do with these shows is just kind of ask our authors at the beginning the origin story of this work. How did this work come to be?
0: Well, that's, that's a good one because I was doing a PhD in Spain. I, I I did a PhD in history in Spain before, and while I was doing it, I got a grant to make an, an Enfield in Cambridge University in the UK. So I went there, and that was the book you, you last read. <laughs> that was my Enfield dissertation, and I got access to the PhD in Cambridge, and I thought this is a unique opportunity to have another PhD in in Cambridge, you know? prestigious university and so on and I thought on expanding my previous topic in Spain but they said no we need like an international topic something unique and so on so I thought on Cuba because I had been in Cuba previously uh, just for three months but basically because people from my region emigrated to Cuba from León to Havana Uh, And I was interested and also I was close to the Communist Party in Spain. So Cuba was always like the place to go and see what, how was communism in in real life and so on. You know, a a big delusion afterwards, but (laughs) at the time that, that was it. So I had a few contacts there and I thought I could do something interesting and unique. And There's not so much stuff done about Cuba. There's a lot of political writing about Cuba. But not so much when you go and look into the actual material that is covered by research, there's a lot of um, unexplored material and there's a lot of political and ideological debate about it. So that was really the the idea. (laughs) There was no plan, but I wanted to I was interested in how Cuba separated from Spain because it never actually did and how Cuba has preserved this You know, spiritual relation with Spain throughout the the century, even and how the revolution brought about this communism in a Caribbean country and that crazy stuff that Cuba is today. And I thought that was going to be unique. And also I was interested in communism under in heritage under communist regimes, which was also what was also something that was not explored at the moment. And at, the, at a library in Cambridge, I found a book by a, a Romanian writer, um, Communism and Cultural Heritage. And I thought, wow, no one has read this book. <laughs> no one has written uh, anything about this guy, uh, Eleazar Baller. Uh, so I used that book to interpret what was going on in Cuba. And I made a paper about communism and cultural heritage. So that was my idea trying to explore these things. And then heritage was the, I don't know, the alibi to to do it.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for that. Um, Very fascinating origin story. So obviously you begin this book, not with the Cuban revolution of 1959, but rather with the Cuban Republican period. So following um, centuries of Spanish colonialism and then US occupation immediately after. Um, In your opinion, what qualities most characterize the creation of public monuments and museums during the Republican period?
0: It was a complex and contradictory period uh, because there were pressures from the United States to be an exit, like Puerto Rico was and will be in the end. Uh, There was also uh, a crazy, (laughs) unique movement, which is that Spain lost the war, but half a million Spaniards migrated to Cuba after independence because Cuba was so economically successful. So even though bonds were being broken with Spain, a lot of Spaniards were coming there. So identity debates and the national idea were quite on the spot. And it was quite interesting how cultural elites in Cuba were trying to build a national identity against American United States power but also against the Spanish colony and building it from the scratch. So basically, uh, it was quite interesting how uh, it was basically a process that took place in Havana. Um, Basically, uh, social civic associations will create like an association for the promotion of the identity of Cuba for this fighter, uh, José Martí. And they will uh, raise funds, make a campaign and, you know, write... uh, posts in the newspapers and so on to collect money. And they will make a public bid for building a, a monument. Um, Basically, Italian sculptors won these contests because Spaniards were banned from the, from the contests. And basically, Cuba was filled of these monuments, like realistic monuments to uh, fighters like independence fighters, you know, for the Cuban freedom, as they say. Uh, But at the same time, uh, the the American backed state at the beginning of the republic was backing up uh, and supporting the the building of monuments to American lives and role in the war and so on. So there were a lot of monuments built from Santiago de Cuba to Havana uh, commemorating the the lives of, of American soldiers in the in the Cuban-Spanish-American War, which is also a a topic of of debate. And basically, I explored this topic in the book through the the main monument, which, you know, uh, you know, the the conflict was flagrated by the the explosion of the main ship in the harbor of Havana and uh, the United States said that it was Spain who had exploded the the ship. And so, okay, so that 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 commemoration was really, really controversial, and, uh, and many people were against supporting it, and so on. But also the most important debate, uh, and the first that I explore in the book, is is about the the monument to Jose Marti. Jose Marti. Today is well known as the most famous figure, historical figure of Cuban independence. But at the moment, it was no, not so clear. I mean, Cubans had no history, no newspapers t- telling the stories of the war and so on. So basically, the, they opened a bid in, le, in the Figaro, a local newspaper, about who should preside the central square of Havana. And the three options were. Christopher Cristóbal Colón, uh, Christopher uh, Christopher Colón, yeah, uh, Christ, Columbus, to, Columbus, yeah. <laughs> uh, Jose Martí and, and also the, the statue of Liberty of freedom from New York, like a copy of the New York statue in in Havana. And actually, uh, Jose Martí won, close closely followed by Cristóbal Colón, but was what was actually built was a, a statue of freedom. Uh, but people kept going there to the square and destroying the statue and so on. So it was a period of, of conflict. And actually, in the end, uh, an statue to José Martí was built and American Marines went there, you know, and spit over the, the statue and so on. So it was a heritage was a, a site of contempt, and a, a place of negotiation of, of identity. And similarly, museums um, followed a different route because they they were a part of what a modern state should be for the uh, elites in Cuba, especially in Havana. So mainly uh, the women of the you know the big entrepreneurs and the big uh, state men of Cuba they created a, an association for making a national museum and and different specific museums about topics and so on. Or rich men like Bacardi in in Santiago de Cuba created private museums, trying to imitate the European model of the you know the modern Car- Cartesian museum with Egyptian mummies, a lion, uh, Roman history pottery. I mean, all kinds of stuff. Uh, because that was a sign of modernity. So th- th- I think this will be a, a good summary, although <laughs> it's quite a complex debate, and, and it's oh. more developed in the book.
1: A great summary for sure. Um and a great introduction to that chapter of your book. So obviously the bulk of this book is the revolution and after. Um and as you show the triumph of the Cuban Revolution in nineteen fifty nine, which is a huge, you know, moment socially, politically, um, changes everything, but also the cultural heritage field. And you specifically talk about what you call the repurposing of public monuments from the Republican era. Um, Could you tell us a little bit more about this?
0: Yeah, so basically, uh, there was a huge debate uh, at the beginning of the revolution about the role of heritage. And this happened in China, in Russia. In every revolutionary country, there was the same debate. Basically, what the socialist ideas predicated was that uh, heritage was not ne- necessary in a communist society. And this was like the more radical stance. Mm-hmm. Others advocated like an abstract and utopian use of heritage. And obviously, <laughs> communist states are also states, and they realized that heritage was quite useful to convey ideas and, and so on. So part of this use of heritage as a form of imposing a new legitimacy and ideology in the public sphere was re-symbolizing the monuments and the museums and everything. And this meant not only changing the the discourse, but also using material culture in different ways. For instance, uh, the Square of the Revolution, which was a civic square, you know, this famous place where Fidel Castro was giving his (laughs) six-hour-long speeches (laughs) and so on. It was like only a fascist architecture monument promoted by the Batista regime. And it was turned into an interactive place for meetings, rallies, and communist propaganda. And so they installed a lot of panels with Marx, Lenin, José Martí, Fidel, uh, they put on speakers and a big television, so the part I, I had access to all these documents of how the process took place and all the debates inside the the movement of what should be a heritage movement in 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 this context. And of course, it's quite inter- interesting because Cuba is not a communist state as such. And it, uh, especially until the 80s, it was quite unique. It was more like a rebel state, as I like to call it. Uh, and they, they had their unique uh, features like the personality of Fidel, which never happened in the Soviet Union. You know, there were important pers- uh, characters in the Soviet Union, but it was not so much personalistic, while Cuba is completely personalistic in the figure of Fidel. And so th- this place became like completely re-symbolized. Even the Museum of the Revolution originally was, was there. Maybe we can talk about that later. So it was completely changed in terms of, of space. And it, it will be again after the 90s re-symbolized. So all the militarist and Soviet stuff, propaganda will shift towards the figure of José Martí and how Cuba is like a humanistic state and ideologically neutral and so on. So this is one of the key examples of re-symbolizing monuments, but this took place throughout Cuba in monuments, in museums, everywhere. It was like a huge movement and it was planned, basically. Before the, the end of the war, I could locate some letters between the leaders Che Guevara and Fidel Castro sending to 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 each other and saying, Hey, we need to build a museum to tell the story of our feet. They didn't know what 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 it was going to be, but they knew that they had to tell the story in a in a museum. And it's it's quite interesting that they had this idea of a museum like a place to tell this story.
1: Thank you so much for that. And yes, um, the Museo de la Revolución uh, discussion was one of my favorite parts of the book, and I did not know that it was originally there, um, nor anything about the origins of of the, you know, revolutionary square that everyone knows is, um, you know, where Fiel gives his very drawn out speeches. Um, so thank you so much for that. Um, so with the 1970s, of course, you talk about what you refer to as the institutionalization of the Cuban heritage field. Most people consider this the really the height of Soviet influence in Cuba. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what you mean by, by institutionalization, uh, particularly in the context of Cuba's strengthening relationship with the USSR and its satellites.
0: Yeah, so what I mean is the the increasing influence of the Soviet Union in all regards. Uh, Basically, Cuba started to depend economically and politically almost completely on the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union also started to have problems with China. So even within the communist world, there was this division between Maoists and Soviets and so on. So the Soviet Union was more strict in terms of If I give you the money, I want your loyalty, you know, and this loyalty has a a, a component of culture and aesthetics. So this meant that um, many people in Cuba started to be trained uh, in the Soviet Union and also many technicians from the Soviet Union came to Cuba to I don't know what will be the, the right word to oversee how things were being performed in in terms of art, in terms of monument building, museum building, and so on. And many manuals were translated from the German republics, from Bulgaria, Romania, and so on, and applied to Cuba. I could see and read a lot of books translated directly uh, into Spanish, from Russian, and so on. And those were applied. And also um, there was a a huge debate, especially in the 60s, between those more oriented towards UNESCO and the European left, if you want to call it like the French European left and so on. And those were more humanistic and there were more party aligned people, you know, and and even the party were they were (laughs) recruiting artists of all kinds. But this debate was not closed and that's something unique to Cuba. Uh, They did not impose a line. It was more or less (laughs) going in some direction, but it was never imposed strictly. So there was, for instance, a a commission created, CODEMA, the commission for the development of Monumental art, but the same happened with museums. And no one has talked much in the literature about Codema. I, I had to find the archive myself and rebuild it because it was <laughs> buried under a, a, a falling wall because, you know, the, the buildings in Cuba are com- completely collapsed after, the, after a special period and so on. And in this archive, you could see all the contests and the letters sent between the leaders and the artists. So there was like a huge, huge debate. Of how aesthetics should be, and monumental aesthetics in particular. No, so I think it's it's, it's quite complex as a topic, and it's difficult to summarize because um, there were winners and losers in its in its monument. So it's it's not easy to say that something someone won the battle. It was like a a constant debate, and it took. Uh, the best, I I think this is important to bring to bear here. The debate, the most important debate was between socialist realism and abstract art. So basically, Cuban artists thought that abstract art was a form of freedom against the party. And the party thought that imposing socialist realism was a way of making happy their <laughs> Soviet technicians, you know, overseeing how things were were happening in in Cuba so in the end many many monuments in Cuba are the result of a negotiation between those two sides and there are many examples in the book Um, basically the squares of the revolution in every provincial city um, they are living examples of this mixing of both we can maybe talk about that later but I think uh, this is what the institu- institutionalization meant like an attempt to control or at least oversee what was happening in the heritage field in Cuba but not only in the heritage field in all fields but heritage was also affected
1: Thank you so much for that um and um as you you know allude to um uh, there are Debates happening at this time. I think that's kind of a misconception sometimes about, you know, you think of, you know, Cuba totalitarian and everything that's happening is, you know, coming directly from supreme leader. Um, Yes, in some cases, but also no. Um, So I really wanted to ask you about these two factions um, that you highlight in your book, and who had a a really formative role in cultural heritage, specifically the ex guerrillas, the um, people that fought alongs primarily men that fought alongside um, Fidel and the Sierra Maestra, and then you have museum professionals and academics, many of whom were trained in the Soviet bloc countries. What did the relationship between these two factions look like, and how did that impact cultural heritage projects in Cuba?
0: Well, basically, the ex-guerrillas, like the brother of Fidel, Raúl, and, and many others, the commanders, you know, <laughs> all the commanders. Uh, became like a a power within the power. So in Cuba, there was always a debate between the circle uh, surrounding Fidel and the Communist Party. So those were two power structures that shared power, resources, and and debates. It was never set as in the case of culture. So uh, in a way, Raul, for instance, the brother of Fidel, he was most closely aligned with the communist idea. He was from the Communist Party since the early beginning. And he was the leader of Minfar, the Ministry of of Defense. And he had like a really radical stance. So he was he thought that uh, the heritage field was being quite uh, taken over by the by the unesco advocates and so on so even the ministry of defense created its own history section and they started to build their own museums without bids. so for instance uh, the museums created by the ministry of culture and the monuments they followed a, like a public bid process and artists and architects they had to make like like a consortium and bid to the project but the Ministry of Defense, they just put in charge of a museum or a monument to one person. And this person was often uh, Delarra, which who was a sculptor, an architect that, you know, built a lot of the socialist, realist uh, buildings, uh, archi- uh, figures of famous uh, characters and so on. And there was like a really, really <laughs> entrenched debate here. And, and, and as I said, it's important to to think when you visit Cuba, well, who did this museum? Who did this monument? Because if you know who did it, you will understand the aesthetics. So you cannot discuss aesthetics without the genealogy of how the monument or the museum was built. And that, that's what I try to do in the book, like going and see how were things built and who was in charge of doing it.
1: Thank you so much for that. Um, so obviously, I mean, the next climactic point really in the book and in Cuban history is the fall of the USSR and the beginning of what's called the special period in Cuba, a major socioeconomic crisis um, during the 1990s. How did this crisis materially impact cultural heritage projects, um, as well as the ideological underpinnings of these projects that had existed um, uh, up until this point?
0: Well, so for the people who knew the special period in Cuba, uh, there was no money, no food, no building materials. People were becoming blind. And I mean, it was a terrible period. And uh, Many people still suffered the consequences. And the heritage field was no ex- exception. There was a stop, a complete stop in the building of new monuments. All the monuments that, wo- that were planned by Codema were stopped. And all the funds were centralized in the state to make one, three, four big monuments that had to be done in terms of ideology, ideological shift and so on. And the the main idea was to forget the Soviet past. Um, There was no more training in in the Soviet Union. There was no Soviet Union. There was no money, no projects uh, and no tourism. So they had to, they needed in Cuba, like hard currency. And they started to open up processes of touristification And of course, the the Oficina del Historiador de la Ciudad de La Habana, the the office for the historian of Habana City, was in charge of this. But also the state uh, shifted from a revolutionary Soviet nationalist, (laughs) Soviet mixed narrative towards more an anti-imperialist narrative, emphasizing the figure of uh, José Martí. So the idea after the 90s is that monuments and museums had to emphasize the connection between José Martí and Fidel Castro, like uh, as if saying that they are both the same figure, and uh, Fidel just realized the ideas of José Martín. And you can see this in the hot spots of revolutionary power, like the Museum of the Revolution, the Square of the Revolution, a new museum was inaugurated, as I said, in the muse- in the in the square of the revolution, about Jose Marti, and all the busts to Lenin they were replaced by busts to Jose Marti. So there was a, like a huge factory in Havana building busts to Jose Marti and sending them all over Cuba, uh, and replacing Lenin for for Jose Marti. And also, the museums uh, had to re-symbolize all the Soviet past. It was fun because I could find some places uh, in re- really remote areas of Cuba where there was no money and no interest in reconditioning the museums. So I could have pictures, uh, and they appear in the book, about the uh, how museums work during the Soviet, Soviet era. Even in, the, in 2015 and <laughs> 25 years later, they were untouched completely so this tells you a lot about about this period and also there was um a lot of money put into the anti-imperialist war against the united states so there was a lot of money put into the elian case uh you know this child that went to florida in the boat with his mother and that was like a huge case and so on so they built like a huge anti-imperialist Tribune and also they they started to make more connections with Latin American leftist leaders because you know there was this wave uh, in Latin America uh, with leaders leaning towards the left Kirchner, uh, Correa in Ecuador, Kirchner in Argentina and so on, Lula in Brazil so there was like a, an attempt to connect materially with Latin America and so it's a complex time and a time of change but basically the idea underpinning all the all the cultural heritage discourse was connecting the notion of Fidel is Jose Marti but communist or more revolutionary
1: super interesting and thank you so much for for that explanation so you had mentioned and i think it's important to to highlight this for the listeners the Office of the Historian of the City of Havana, as you know, you mentioned and explained in the book, um, this is an office that existed since Spanish colonial times that gradually fades into obscurity, but then is revived, particularly with a turn towards tourism um, as the official uh, economic model. Could you tell us a little bit about how the Office of the Historian grew into what it is and how it has traditionally approached its work under the leadership of, of Eusebio Leal?
0: Yeah, so the Oficina del Historiador was something created during the Republican times uh, by Eusebio Roig de Le- um And he was a, a special character. He was a writer, a journalist, a historian. He appeared in all the newspapers and he was really well-regarded by all powers. And he connected the preservation of history in texts and archive research with the preservation of material culture from the past. So this idea, the office disappears when the revolution comes. Um, it, it and Eusebio... He 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 dies really, I mean, not Eusebio, Roig de Luchering. he dies in, obli- in oblivion because he was he was not a convinced revolutionary. And so it was downplayed by, by the revolution. But then after the 80s, Eusebio Leal uh, takes over the Oficina del Historiador. Well, not takes over, reinvents the Oficina del Historiador and starts to work uh, with his hands and people, friends of his. He starts rebuilding and recovering archaeological materials, rebuilding homes and so on. And so by the by the 90s, with the fall of the Soviet bloc, uh, the Oficina is like something that works. It's it's not big, it's something small, but it's something that works. And Fidel Castro puts Eusebio in charge of rebuilding all Havana. So... Old Havana uh, was seen as a a, a symbol of colonialism. Uh, It was declared World Heritage in the 80s by the UNESCO-leaning academics uh, in Cuba. But the leadership was not that much aligned with this idea. They still thought of Old Havana as something to be destroyed. And even during the 60s, it was a, a proposal to destroy Old Havana. And the Republican Times also saw Old Havana like a, an old place. You know, no, no, There was nothing to do there and, and so on. So for the first time, someone says, hey, we can bring tourism and money through Old Havana and rehabilitating all that stuff. So basically, Old Havana was uh, crumbling. Uh, of the 3,400 buildings, I don't know, maybe... I don't know correctly, I have the numbers in the book, but uh, around 2,000 buildings were either collapsed or in risk of complete collapse, collapsed. And uh, by the 90s, every three days, a building collapsed in all La Habana. So the idea behind the office is to bring money and use that money to rehabilitate the city. I think it's quite interesting as a, as a management model, actually. And it was the first time that the Communist Party allowed some entity to be like a company operating privately. There is like a boundary between old Havana and Havana now. And the the Office of the Historian has its own. It's like a private company. They have their their buildings, their hotels, their museums. Uh, They have a tourism company. They have a radio, an editorial a newspaper so it's like they have people hired like uh, clowns and everything uh, but what what's is interesting is that the money that comes through tourism through the hotels and everything is redirected to restoring old habana so it's not a for-profit but it's a non-profit entity and that is it's a quite interesting model and it worked quite well and uh, cuba by the 2015 Uh, Two million people were visiting Old Havana, so that's a lot. By that time, three million people were visiting Cuba as a whole, so (laughs) for every three tourists, two were going to Old Havana. And it became like a beautiful city with a lot of problems and so on. But it became like a hotspot for diplomacy. If the king of Spain was visiting Cuba, it will be received not by Fidel, but by Eusebio. Eusebio Leal really and that, that was quite a change and also they rebuilt Havana not based on how Havana was during colonial times but it was like quite a Caribbean theme park you know like quite of this kind of heritage station, inventing colors and so on but for the Cubans it was a, a site of color of happiness uh, that contrasted clearly with the great architecture of Soviet era-era buildings made in Yugoslavia and sent to Cuba and just assembled in Cuba. So that created a sense of identity. And I think that all the stuff that has been done in, in Old Havana has been quite important in terms of cha- changing the idea of Cubans about themselves and about their relationships with the world in many ways.
1: Thank you so much for that, and that um, really interesting explanation of, of Eusebio Leal, which anybody interested in Cuba needs to know um, who this person was. So a key tension in this book, obviously, and is something you um, that is exemplified by some key anecdotes in your book, for example, the reinstalling of the statue of José Miguel Gómez on Avenida de los Presidentes, which was taken down at the beginning of the revolution, Is this conflict between kind of outward versus inward facing cultural heritage projects or, you know, better said, projects designed for an international audience, a touristic audience versus an internal Cuban audience, which the latter was obviously the focus of the, um, you know, from the 1970s up into the special period. How is this historically, this tension played out on the ground in Cuba? And what does it look like in this modern era of international tourism?
0: Yeah, this one is a a difficult one because the the audience of heritage changes depending on on the times and the conception of heritage. So it's quite a dynamic relation. But basically, uh, we could say that during the Republican times, uh, the audience was completely internal, but also trying to send a message to the United States saying, hey, we have a national identity and so on. So it was a political audience, (laughs) let's say. Uh, in the attempt to create a national identity, of course, against the United States and the colonial power Spain. Then during the revolution, again, there was no tourism, only a little bit of travels from the Soviet Union and so on. And therefore, again, heritage was a political tool. Um, And only afterwards, after the 90s, we can not so clearly differentiate between monuments for the tourists and monuments for the locals but in a way uh, they are but uh, if you go to the museum of the revolution it's intended for the local public but the tourists go to see like a, a relic of the soviet era museography it's like something fun because they if you talk and interview the the guys at the museum of the revolution and many others i interviewed like 100 and so much people and they are thinking of the museum as a as a tool for education. They don't have the money incentive because in Cuba it's it's like a you know capitalist thing to have like <laughs> a for-profit mentality. Only the office of the historian has a for-profit mentality. So it's a, a complex mixture. But if we want to use as an example, you mentioned Jose Miguel Gomez, Jose Miguel Gomez was a, a president uh, during the Republic and he was known to have repressed the black community a lot so the result of hatred among the african cuban community in in cuba against the memory of this president so of course when the revolution came they torn down the the statue in in the avenue of the presidents of cuba so jose miguel gomez disappeared from the history of cuba until the office of the historian uh, reclaims a new form of identity and history based on what they say is real history. Because during the Soviet Union, it was like a fake or fictitious, let's call it, a form of understanding history in terms of big periods and so on. So uh, the, the Office of the Historian didn't know that it was going to be such a, a problem with the African community. Uh, And they restored the the statue and, well, the monument, because it is a huge monument to José Miguel Gómez for the sake of beauty um, and for the sake of reconnecting with the real past. And they did the same with the Capitolium, which was a clear symbol of, of allegiance to the United States during the Republic in Cuba. And the Communist Party was not so for the rehabilitation of the Capitolium. Uh, the Capitolium had been the natural museum during the revolution because it was said that it was a symbol of power of, of America and uh, proto colonialism and so on. And so, rehabilitation these symbols of past problematic ideas was a new form of relating with the world and with history by the Office of the Historian. What happened in the end with Eusebio Leal? Well, this all this stuff that he did uh, was not so well seen by the Ministry of Defense and Raúl especially, who was the, the Minister of Defense. So when Fidel dies and Raúl takes power, uh, he really downplays the, offices, the Office of the Historian and the Ministry of Defense takes over the Office of the Historian and Eusebio Leal finally ends his life, like in a secondary role, like really a historian, not a, a, an entrepreneur or a person with a lot of power, just as a historian, writing books and so on. And the office is totally done played today. I mean, it's it has still a lot of money and moves, tourism, but it's like a heritage from the Eusebio Leal period.
1: Thank you so much for that. Um, so um, kind of getting... Um... Obviously, this research ended um, during the Obama era, um, and a lot has changed in Cuba since you since you began this research. So, this is kind of a little bit more about your point of view um, as someone who's done this this very long and detailed work. Um, what, in in your opinion, what direction is cultural heritage in Cuba headed um, at this current moment?
0: Well, this is a moment of confusion, uh, because even after Raul, it was, I mean, it's, it's, no one really knows how to define, even in academic circles, what's going on in Cuba, because there is no clear ideology. Uh, the connections with China are, are there, but are not so strong. They have not followed the Chinese model of industrialization and so on. And neither the Vietnamese model of, you know, transitioning slowly towards capitalism and so on. So it's quite difficult to understand. They are trying to connect more today. I mean, they have more freedom. That's clear. And they're trying to connect more with UNESCO and New Museology, these kinds of discourses. And even museums and monuments today are not being created. Rather, they are being closed. There was a project to close down municipal museums. You know, one part of the book I explained the process of creation of 400 museums <laughs> in Cuba, all replicating in the, the same model. So now they are trying to to close down uh, at least half of these museums. So they are realizing that they, they they cannot maintain such a huge network of museums and monuments and so on. So it's a moment of stalemate. I, I tell a fun story at the end of the book, uh, which for me encompasses a little bit what, what's going on. You know, In Cuba, there, there was no internet. Well, there is internet, but with a router and a modem are really slow, 56k. So you had to wait for five minutes to open you know, Hotmail or Gmail or something and to pay like five euro per, per, <laughs> per hour, six dollars or something. So there were and for Cubans, there was no Internet at all. So after the 2010s, more or less in different moments, they start to open up uh, Wi-Fi hotspots in 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 main squares and so on. So this guy in in Camagüey, a provincial city in Cuba, he was trying to get more Wi-Fi connection and he climbed into the Agramonte monument. Agramonte is like one of their the fighters for freedom in the independence world of Cuba. And, and basically the monument falls <laughs> off. The guy, Agramonte, his horse and so on, like a huge bronze statue. Uh, and the guy is taken to the to the police station. The next day they rehabilitate uh, the monument. They make the ceremony and no one goes to the ceremony. <laughs> The, the square was full of people looking for the, their Wi-Fi connection their smartphone bought <laughs> in Spain or in the in the states and and trying to get their their connection you know they didn't care at all about all these ideas and heritage regimes that the the state's trying to to impose you know and there is also the, this case of trying to I tell that at the end of the book you know the 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 attempt to create a a new museum uh, with the European Union. The European Union was trying to fund a huge project together with the Office of the Historian of Havana uh, called the Palacio del Segundo Cabo. Uh, And this museum should tell the story of good relationships between Europe and Cuba, but the notion about the idea of europe in cuba is like a colonial power you know that bad bad guys you know the states they are really bad but europe is also really bad so it was really difficult for for them to create a narrative of the museum and i was part of it throughout two years and i i was trying to to grasp how they were unable to develop new narratives because even though uh, the ideas and the techniques were there because there's a lot of money in the office of the historian and they were hiring Spanish companies, Italian companies with all the techniques and so on. They did not know how to develop a narrative that was not not against, but different from the state narrative of hate, hatred against the West in general. So this tells a lot about the office of the historian and its limits, you know. It can rehabilitate old Havana, it can create beauty and so on, but without content. It's like aesthetics without content. So in a way, it replicates a little bit what is happening with heritage globally, you know, like a restoration of heritage for the sake of it and money and gentrification uh, without any new narrative.
1: Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And I love the anecdote about the guy climbing the statue in Camagüey looking for Wi Fi. <laughs> I feel like I've, you know, obviously, you go to any Wi Fi hotspot in Cuba, you're gonna have, you know, 10s of, of people at any given moment. So uh, it's a really, um, it, it's, it's, it's an anecdote that says a lot. So I like to always conclude these interviews by asking the authors um, a little bit about their current projects and give them space to, to share a little bit about that. So if um, What are you currently working on? Do you have any any projects that you'd like to, to share?
0: Well, after my PhD in Cuba, I published this book and also another book about my other PhD in Spain, which was called uh, The Heritage Machine, which is more like a heritage ethnography in my region, in Leon, in Spain. And after that, I moved a bit more into anthropology and more uh, applied projects in terms of food heritage, gastronomical her- heritage. And I got a position in the Canary Islands, uh, which are really <laughs> the sister islands to Cuba, because many Canarians went to Cuba and back and so on. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really surrounded by Cubans <laughs> in, my, in, in my life. And so I'm not disconnected by the research from Cuba. It's like quite far away from me now. Currently, we are working, especially in food heritage, regarding can- Canary stuff, because all the all the Canarian gastronomic heritage is, has been disregarded completely, a little bit like Hawaii in the United States. And we have actually a guy from Hawaii that is applying with us for a postdoc position. Uh, he says that it's quite quite similar. We have also volcanoes and so on. So that that's the thing. That's what I'm doing. Uh, I'm not writing books at the moment uh i i don't have time but i have a huge group working with me we are like 12 13 people so i invite you if you are interested in in working with us we are we're also working on heritage as well but more more local and, and less i say i will say less international in in scope
1: wow yeah that sounds like really fascinating work um so Thank you so much for for sharing it. And thank you for, for talking about this really great book with us. This has been um, Pablo Alonso Gonzalez um, talking about his book, Cuban Cultural Heritage, A Rebel Past for a Revolutionary Nation. It is available via the University Press of Florida. And thank you so much again, Pablo.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much for this time to remember my my times in Cuba it's already a decade since I started visiting Cuba well no more than a decade 2007.
1: Wow yeah yeah any it was a pleasure for sure.
0: Thank you very much.